Hello everyone, welcome back to Sound and Groove Podcast. It's the second episode of 2016 out of six we'll be doing, just to give you a heads up. This one is, uh, well, I guess I would have owed it to you in March, but hey, it's coming now, alright? So, and uh, we've had a lot of big musical luminaries passing away lately, so you'd think I'd be doing more episodes about, you know, tribute to this guy, tribute to that, but I mean, it's just too much. I've done, I think, like four of those over the last couple of years, and they're appropriate every once in a while, but not not every time it happens. As much as Prince was a giant, uh, I had just gotten done the Bowie one. I didn't see Prince coming around the corner. <laughs> but there'll be a little bit of Prince uh, in the intro and outro. You'll hear a snippet of his music to lead us into and out of the episode. And that got me thinking about a theme, something a little royalty. How about uh, there'll always be royals, music with noble titles. <laughs> You might say it's uh, tracks, you know, that refer to or talk about in the title or in the lyrical content matters of royalty of uh, kingdoms and queens and kings, uh, dukes, duchesses, you know, stuff like that, uh, emperors, castles, and all that other stuff that goes with the medieval fiefdom and feudal society and the absolute monarchies and all that other stuff from the middle ages to the early modern period blah 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 it's kind of a historical thing i'm just wrapping on you in there but uh it's this is what's going to be going down in this episode these are going to be tracks that have that royal tinge to them and uh i pretty much a working titles with they'll always be royals and rather than they'll never be royals as you may recall lord singing a few years back she's not in this episode but uh, oops spoiler <laughs> but what will be right off the top is a track that uh, kind of evokes memories of a London he had growing up in, and that was uh, Richard Thompson, a fantastic folk guitar player that was in Fairport Convention that had his own stellar solo career. It was a track off his uh, 1999 album, a bit of a comeback. It's got you know shades of rockabilly in his music, along with the effortlessly wonderful finger-picking style of his guitar playing. Kind of one of the better uh, examples of English folk guitaring. It uh, gets translated into rock, and he has that unique style you can always tell. It's very jangly and uh, lots of bends in the notes and stuff and hammer-ons and hammer-offs, but I'm getting a little technical, I know. But it doesn't sound your typical uh, bluesy lead guitar school of rock that we've kind of become used to. Anyway, the track is from his 1999 album, Mock Tudor. It's called Cook's Fairy Queen. It's a lead cut on the album, actually. It kicks it off in a rollicking style, I'd say. And what better way to kick off this episode with a song that gets an album going in uh, rousing fashion. So, let's take a listen to Richard Thompson, Cooked Fairy Queen, on the Sound of Groove podcast. Well, there's a house in an alley In the squats and low-rise Of a town with no future But that's where my future lies It's a secret, but no secret it's a rule, but no rule Where you find the darkest avenue You'll find the brightest jewel Now my name, it is Mulvaney And I'm known quite famously People speak my name in whispers what high a praise can that be? But I trade my fine mohair for tight dyes and faded jeans. If she wanted me some other way, 
Richard Thompson with the uh, fantastic Cooks Fairy Queen off his finely underrated 1999 album, Mock Tudor. So there's a bit of a British theme running through there. That uh, album has other tracks like that, like Sights and Sounds of London Town and so forth. So it's kind of like a bit of a postcard or his homage, or uh, I guess you could call it a love letter to uh, a big city that he grew up in and that he came of age in and then became a famous musician in. In his days in Fairport Convention, then on his own with his uh, former wife, Linda. They were quite an amazing duo. Probably one of the best husband and wife duos. There are a few of them, of course, in the uh, contemporary pop music world over the years. So, moving on from that, we've talked about a queen there. He's referring to the particular character in the song that he dubs the Cook's Fairy Queen. How about a king? A king of the New York streets. It's Dion, or uh, better known to his family members and friends as Dion DiMucci. This guy was uh, the lead singer of a popular doo-wop act, late 50s, early 60s, Dion and the Belmonts, Teenager in Love, Run Around Sue, that kind of stuff. Dion went solo, and the hips kept, hits kept coming for him, but uh, his personal life was a bit of a shambles as he fell into a drug addiction. Drug and alcohol abuse got uh, out of control by the mid-60s, and uh, eventually with some spiritual awakenings, which eventually led to a religious uh, conversion and stuff for him, or a religious journey where he became... Uh, almost solely dedicated to music that was of that uh, holy nature in the 80s. Dion put his career back on the right path in 1968 by recording a particularly popular top five hit that was a tribute to fallen leaders in the United States, uh, important figures. It was called Abraham, Martin, and John. And it was quite a departure because Dion had been known for sort of like a doo-wop, tough R&B sound, but he was venturing out into folk in the mid-60s. And when he got his life and career back on track, he went into that venture playing the clubs. And later in his career, he went back toward the music of old, refashioned that nostalgia into a really uh, interesting career. I mean, this wasn't a guy from the 50s you could look at as an oldie revival act. He had some pretty good albums. He did one when he came back from his uh, religious days singing uh, gospel albums uh, called Yo Frankie from 1989. 
And on it, he uh, re revisited his early days, you know, growing up in the Bronx and stuff. Of course, uh, glossing over the fact there was all that drug addiction that he got uh, involved in, in in his teens and focusing on the happy times, the music. And this particular track shows you that tough side of him, although he, you know, the peaceful, re you know, religious guy. Basically, the music came a little more bluesy, and he explored that in some blues albums in the 90s. So there was a lot of sides to Dion DiMucci that you didn't know about. So let's take a listen to King of the New York Streets on the Sound of Groove podcast. There's the always uh, charming Dion with King of the New York Streets for his 1989 sort of comeback album, Yo Frankie, 
It's a very much, you know, a New York thing. You can just tell by that song particularly and the rest of the album. A lot of all-star contributions. And a lot of critics loved that and, you know, talked about Dion making a graceful comeback. I mean, aging gracefully, doing rebuilding his career without totally relying on that 50s nostalgia. Do, making a voice for himself heard and, you know, had a lot of champions and artists that were pop, more popular than him by that time who were promoting his music, such as Bruce Springsteen. And uh, that uh, really, it's kind of a triumphant story considering he could have been just another burnout and rock and roll drug OD and everything like that. <laughs> so anyhow, let's move to another royal song. This one is a little more specific. It's like talking about a particular um, no, uh, member of the nobility with a particular title and uh, you know uh, position I guess you could say or, or in the aristocracy it's uh, a track called the 11th Earl of Mar by Genesis now of course you know that sounds a little fancy and uh, might even say pretentious but uh, Genesis was kind of into that bombast in the mid 70s this is after Peter Gabriel left the band mind you and they'd done stuff like uh, uh, Battle of Epping Forest this kind of very you know Dungeons and Dragons medieval stuff and also a track called Dancing with the Moonlit Night, K-N-I-G-H-T, Night. So this didn't really, you know, uh, abandon them completely after Gabriel left the band. And they had auditioned, you know, hundreds of singers and then settled on their drummer in the end, Phil Collins. And, you know, the rest is history. They became a giant multi-platinum stadium touring act in the 80s, but originally stuck with the prog rock, which had, you know, a lot of chord changes, complicated lines and solos and long winding tunes that were six anywhere from six to 16 minutes <laughs> and this is off a late 1976 album called wind and weathering and it was the follow-up to a trick of the tail their first release though gabriel which was a surprise hit this album wind and weathering actually had a top 40 single derived from it called your own special way like the first true genesis love song didn't just really you know mention it in passing that was focused on that specific subject now, 11th Earl of Marv, definitely, definitely not that, you'll hear. So let's get to it now. So here's Phil Collins fronting Genesis in 1976 with the 11th Earl of Marv on the Sound of Groove podcast.
All right, there was uh, from Wind and Weathering, Genesis's song, Genesis's, the eleventh Earl of Mar. Uh, that's based on a uh, Scottish Jacobite named John Erskine, who was the eleventh Earl of Mar. In a book that I think guitarist Mike Rutherford pulled out, according to his uh, recollection of it, that uh, he got the idea for the song from. And uh, let's move on. Keep going here. Something a little royal as well that uh, refers to. Um, the Mardi Gras Indians. It's from an album that's basically done by uh, several members of that particular Indian group that was formed in the early 70s. It's uh, made up of a lot of Creole, like a lot of uh, multiracial people, African American and um, Native uh, backgrounds. And uh, George Landry was the name of the guy, and he came up with an album where he was uh, known as Big Chief Jolly. And uh, his nephews were the Neville brothers, uh, who were separated, you know, in different acts over the years. Aaron, of course, had his own solo career going. And then there was Art and Cyril and Charles, who were all part of uh, the Meters, or Funky Meters, as some people called them. A great New Orleans instrumental uh, group that put out several hits of their own, R&B hits, with a funky kind of style that emphasized rhythm. It was very Nolans, you might say, and then almost a... Laid the groundwork for some hip-hop beats, uh, could be uh, argued. And uh, they were used as a backing group by many artists, like Joe Cocker, Paul McCartney. Everybody hired them for something at some point, it seems. And uh, the Neville Brothers got together for the first time before they actually formed a band called the Neville Brothers, where all of them were together um, a year later, to make an album called The Wild Chapatulas. And uh, this George Landry, their uncle, Big Chief Jolly, sang uh, the tracks and was supported by his uh, family and a host of other musicians. And this is a track off of that fantastic album from 1976 called Big Chief Got a Golden Crown. So take a listen to this. It's got the call and response type of music that the Mardi Gras Indians specialized in. And uh, yeah, this is a royalty of a different kind. Some a um, unique native tribe, sort of a uh, offshoot of that idea is what the Mardi Gras Indians were, and they were always featured in, and still are, I believe, featured in the uh, Mardi Gras Parade and all that. So uh, take a listen. Uh, let's uh, go through that and get a little taste of New Orleans with Big Chief Got a Golden Crown, the Wild Chapatulas, on the Sound of Group podcast. Big Chief with the 
George Landry, the Big Chief Jolly, the Wild Chapatools with the name of his Mardi Gras Indian tribe, actually. It's a tradition dating back to, like, 18th century and everything. And you should see the outfits that those guys wear. Pretty colorful, pretty... I mean, they put... A, a lot of the uh, Native American tribes don't come close to the kind of garishness of a lot of these outfits with huge headdresses and f fringes, and it looks like like boas all over the place, you know, feather boas and stuff like that. <laughs> it looks like they just attach that to their outfit, and that's basically the kind of thing that they feud over and the violence of years before where tribes used to settle scores and Mardi Gras time has come to an end thankfully and uh, that album Wild Chapatulas is a celebration of that culture and it's music and uh, the New Orleans music in general Alan Toussaint who's that legendary New Orleans figure basically like the the unquestioned number one um, figure in the music coming out of New Orleans over the last 50 years produced that album of course and worked with the Neville Brothers in years to come off and on as well. Uh, so, more royalty on display with our next track. This one's called Two Princes. Now, if you're conscious and remember 1993, you'll uh, maybe recognize this track. It sounds like something right at a college radio station, and it kind of has that sort of loose, jammy feel to it, where you'd hear, you know, a group going out there and trying to play a funky style music that borders on hip-hop but has enough... Uh, kind of guitar crunch to be considered rock and roll and it was a band called the Spin Doctors they finally they struck gold with this one and kind of somewhat derided somewhat praised as a one-hit wonder today they had an album that was a fairly successful one that this was built around pocket full of kryptonite it was called actually and uh, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong was another fairly successful cut off of it but this one really took off and was a top five hit in several countries back in 1993 but the spin doctors never lived up to all that of course they kind of faded away from the uh, popular frame now blender magazine a music culture magazine called this one of the 50 worst tracks ever so they hated it but that's partly just you know because of its popularity it's sort of, sort of saying okay we know there are worse songs out there but this one was all over the radio anyway let's listen to two princes by the spin doctors Just go ahead. 
1993 surprise hits Two Princes by the Spin Doctors. That album actually came out later in 1991. It wasn't even 1992. I stand corrected, which is surprising. I mean, it just took a while for that album to really take off. It took about a year for it, you know, caught on with radio and MTV and everything like that. So it doesn't always, you know, you tour and you get word of mouth going. And just when you're expecting nothing to happen, sometimes the song is used in a TV show or commercial or whatever you're licensed for if you do. And boom, success and fame and all that other stuff. And Spin Doctors, follow-up two albums, did okay. And then slowly but surely, their sales dropped. And I think their lead singer, Chris Barron, also came down with a vocal paralysis for a couple of years that rendered him unable to talk or sing or something. So really, the momentum of anything they had going was derailed. And also, the public's taste changed a bit. They didn't really want those happy-go-lucky rock bands that kind of rose to prominence as a response to the gloominess of grunge and of uh, the excess and the extravagance of sexism sometimes, of, of heavy metal, like hair metal particularly. How about we go to something now that's a little, it's a feminine aspect of it. No, not queen or princess, but a marquesa. A marquesa, you know, as in uh, the opposite of the marquis, um, like Marquis de Sade. This is a track that's about his uh, woman. It's a uh, Marquesa de Sade. It's a funky Latino flavored uh, cut from David Johansson, his third album from 1981 called Here Comes the Night. Now, he was a former lead singer of New York Dolls, but uh, when he shed the makeup and the female clothing and all that, he uh, fashioned out a pretty good, although, you know, not high-profile solo career with some tremendous songs. He was could have been a big, huge rock star. People just paid attention. They, you know, original, originally uh, sidecast him as some kind of Mick Jagger wannabe because of his look. He kind of looked like a... like. Some kind of baboon version of Mick, you know, something a little more hideous and uh, sinister and evil sounding and acting. But really, he was uh, just a rock and roller at heart who had some pretty good taste and hired a lot, a lot of the right people and writers and sidemen and stuff to do his work. And this track has got a lot of, you know, the timbales and stuff like that, that uh, and the piano riff that it always goes along with a salsa type of song. Anyway, let's get to that uh, Sort of talking about the female equivalent to the Marquis de Sade, of course, who sexually libertine ways uh, kind of coined the phrase sadism or being a sadist were considered, you know, they were derived from his behaviors. Anyway, bet you didn't know that. Uh, here he is, Marquis de Sade by David Johansson on the Sound Group Podcast. 
Okay, there was uh, Marquesa de Sade by Dav- David Johansson, who, as I mentioned, was in the New York Dolls, but later found a lot more success as an alter-ego lounge singer character that you may or may not know about from the 80s called Buster Poindexter. And, uh, yeah, you would know him if you've heard that feeling, hot, hot, hot. Yeah, he kind of dug that song up and popularized it, which, uh, you know, he, he'll never live down <laughs> because it got out of control and started this whole Caribbean sort of uh, revival in the 80s. It was really annoying. Even my school had a beach day in the early 90s when I was a little kid. So, yeah, it was a little wild and uh, regrettable, annoying, but whatever, <laughs> to each his own. And... Uh, Johansson also went into acting. He kind of put his music career as off to the side, but while the Buster Poindexter thing was taking off, he got more acting roles, as it were. So uh, yeah, he's been kind of revisiting his roots and some uh, more folky work over the last several years, more blues work. So he's actually quite a quality artist, not just some front man. So give him a chance, and I think you'll enjoy his music. Whether or not you like New York Dolls, I think you'll like his music. Anyway, um, more royalty stuff, all right, coming up here. Let's focus now on the Guess Who. Good old Canadian bandy. So this is a track from their album number 10, which came out in 1974, and it was their 10th album. I don't think they put up that many studio albums by then, but they were claiming to. They might have been including some of their live releases or hits, uh, compilations. Anyhow, by this point, Burton Cummings was the sole focus. He had not quite launched a solo career, which he'd eventually do, but... Uh, I think the uh, original drummer, Gary Peterson, in the Guess Who was still around. Um, but at this point, they'd gone through different bass players. Or Jim Cale might not have been in the group anymore by this point. Uh, but uh, the ba- the guitarists had been a revolving door. And Randy Bachman had long since left the band uh, around the time of the success of American Woman. And had formed Brave Belt and Bachman Overdrive, who soon became much bigger than the Guess Who. And Burton Cummings, when he did a solo career, he had some crossover hits in the United States, but mostly was a popular artist back in his native Canada. So anyway, this is a track from number 10 uh, called Cardboard Empire. So take a listen to that one here as we continue on the Sound of Groove podcast. Ground. 
All right, there was Cardboard Empire by the Guess Who from their 1973 album, I should say, 10. Um, that uh, was only pretty much counting releases back to 1969 because they had existed as a Guess Who before that um, and put out some albums, mostly in Canada, nothing that saw the light of day in the U.S. And before that, they were Chad Allen and the Expressions. And later in the going when they were named that is when Burton Cummings, a young like teenage Burton Cummings at that point, joined the band. Anyway, by this point, his piano-driven rockers and piano-driven ballads were pretty much the dominant force. He was really the only accomplished songwriter in the band, although Kurt Winter and and Greg Lescue, who were two guitarists that had been uh, hired to replace Bachman, had contributed their share of the songwriting, either uh, on their own or collaborating with Burton. And uh, Dominic Trina would join the group in 74, 75, toward their end of their run. He had been in the James Gang before that, but he was a Toronto-area guitarist who was masterful one, really well-versed in blues and figure-picking style uh, and jazz. So anyway, uh, he wasn't on that recording, though. And uh, that will uh, carry us into our final track. This is a song from Tom Verlaine called Kingdom Come that David Bowie, who I just came off doing the tribute episodes about, uh, covered an, a year after this, because this came out in 79. He covered it a year later on his album Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. And this was Verlaine's solo debut after a few years of being in the band Television. They uh, finally got to put out a record in 1977 after a few years of uh, playing and gigging around New York and getting huge hype and word of mouth. And Marky Moon lived up to all that. A tremendous album, but their follow-up adventure, while pretty good, didn't quite hit those lofty heights. And then all of a sudden the band was over pretty quickly, just as it had started. And Verlaine had gone solo, and that was it. Uh, television would reunite, though, to tour and make a, another uh, studio album in the early 90s. But Verlaine, in the meantime, was building up his solo career as a cult favorite. And uh, he didn't have the greatest singing voice. He always sounded kind of nervous and yelpy and stuff. But his inventive guitar work, you know, he made the most of his limited skills. And songwriting uh, ability kind of uh, kept him in the critics' favor for a while. So let's listen to Kingdom Come from Tom Verlaine from 79 on the one and only Sound of Groove podcast.
Yes, is the criminally underrated Tom Verlaine with Kingdom Come. The final track of this part one of the theme of They'll Never Be Royals. We're talking about royalty and music. Song titles, the lyrical content, you know, that's our theme, linking this all together. And uh, there'll be another episode to come out soon. I'm trying to get them both in here in May, so uh, keep uh, your eyes peeled and your ears uh, tuned to listen in. And, uh, yeah, there'll be something cool for you in the next one. I'm glad you've tuned in to listen to this one. I hope you enjoyed it and come back for more of the Sound of Groove podcast with our wonderful themes, this second episode of 2016. And the third one will be out uh, at some point in the next few weeks, so take care, folks. (laughs) 